This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Welcome to Spice Bags, where three opinionated ladies, Blanca, May and me, Dee, have a dish about food in Ireland from an international perspective. Welcome to Spice Bags. Um, our podcast episodes, if you're new to Spice Bags, come in three delectable flavors. Deep dives, which are comprehensive explorations into a country's cuisine, staple chats where we dish about a topic amongst ourselves, and conversations with individuals who have been impactful on the international Irish scene. Pick a flavor, and we hope you like more than one. Today, we're recording a deep dive episode as we delve into the cuisine of Poland. Poland. (laughs) Joining us in the studio are two very nice guests called Camilla and Bart, who we'll properly introduce in two minutes. Uh, Bart and Camilla are part of the Irish food community, and they will be sharing stories with us about (coughs) Polish cuisine in Ireland. But first, we need to tell you some really big news. Yay! We won the award for Best Irish Food Podcast of 2021 at the Irish Food Writing Awards. Mm -hmm. And as if that wasn't enough, Mei Chin won Writing on International Cuisines Award. Yay! We are so excited. We're so proud, I think, as well. Like, I genuinely wasn't expecting it. So just we just wanted to say thank you to the Irish Food Writing Awards for you know, for holding the awards. It's the first time the awards were on. Um, but also to Headstuff while we're here recording without them and their support and being part of the family that is the Headstuff Podcast Network. You know, we just wouldn't be what we are. So we have to thank them massively. But also to everyone who listens and everyone who's been on the podcast. Um, it's such a collaborative thing. We can't exist without each other, May and Blanca, but also without uh, everyone who takes part and everyone who listens. So thank you so much. Um, I just want to add something. I know I've said this before, but um, with the um, with the International Cuisine Award and and the Spice Bags Award, um, it was about for me, it was about D doing this, assigning me global beats. And the first the first one was uh, Blanca helping me with Turkish cuisine. So I just, so it's, we've been together from the start is the only thing I wanted to say. That's nice. <laughs> so uh, May, are you going to introduce our guests properly? Now? I am. Um, I want to introduce Camilla from Momo and Bart from Aran. Um, but also, if it's okay, can I ask you to pronounce your surnames? <clears throat> can I ask you to <laughs> Try to pronounce sur- it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give it a go first, Come on. May. Okay, all right. Um, Pajuic? Polukajic? Polakosh. Pavlukoic. Oh my God. Pavlukoic. Oh wow, we just really failed on that. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so bad. That's why I didn't want to pronounce it. Camilla, I I couldn't even try. Bistranovska. 
When they started, I was like, oh, what's your surname? Like, we can't pronounce both of them. What's yours? Hey, you know, my surname is quite unusual and it's hard to pronounce for some Polish people. <laughs> and in Ireland, it's kind of funny. So that's yeah. why I kept it. <laughs> and I don't want to be O'Neill because it's, you know, much more exotic. O'Neill is your married name. Yes. No, yeah, you're right. Beautiful name. I'm also going to ask you guys your age. And I know we usually do this with our guests, but I think it, it you know, like when we're going to talk about Polish food and history, I think it's going to be, become relevant. Yes. So you can lie. You can lie. No, 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 <laughs> absolutely not. I am 42 this year. So, yeah, I'm 42. I am 36. Oh, yeah. The reason I suppose we ask is just there's such a difference in Poland, which we'll go into, obviously, when we're asking your stories about what each generation's experience of food is because of the different timeline and history. And Camilla, you're, what year are you? 85? No, no seven, 80. 79. 79. So, yeah, so you're like my sister. So, you see, I have a few friends here in Ireland who are in Bart's age, and we can see that it's only, what, six years difference, but it's a huge gap. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of our experiences. That was the transition. That w- that was the transition. Oh, I can't wait to get into it. Um, um, I just yes, I was like I w- we were going to talk about that at length. I just also wanted to say that Camilla, you own Momo, which is award winning in Waterford, a restaurant in Waterford. Yes, and Bart, you own Aron, which has gotten lots of accolades in Kilkenny, a restaurant and bakery. Restaurant and bakery. Yeah. Yeah. We just want to make sure everyone just knows make sure who you guys are. are before we're like, oh, like, you know, let's talk about childhood. So, uh, well, let's start our chat on Polish cuisine then. Um, I mean, oh, the one thing we were fascinated by when um, researching this was there's 150,000 Polish people in Ireland um, population. Um, so huge population of Irish. Only. Only. Well, that's the from that's 2016 well. <laughs> from the sen- like the last census. So Good. it could be a lot higher than that. Yeah, that's the official though. 120,000. You think it's smaller? Mm. Yeah, because mm. I remember hearing originally it was it was higher. It was around 200,000. Three well, at one point it was 300,000. 300,000. Oh, wow. yeah. yeah. So it's decreasing. Um, is you feel? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's also Polish cuisine is so broad, and as we we're saying, it's so different from decade to decade or generation to generation. So uh, it's a difficult one to tackle, but we've been really enjoying researching it. I just wanted to say um, my first exposure to Polish food was in Chicago, and Chicago is one of the largest Polish communities outside Poland. So in Chicago, a lot of people had last names like yours, and there were a lot of pierogi restaurants and Pachi, the donut. Ponchi. And it was like, very common in Chicago to have Pol- the ta- a taste of Poland was a big food festival. So I feel I know a little bit and also one of my friends is Polish. But I found in Ireland there wasn't it wasn't as visible. Yeah. So um, I think we've we one of the things we chatted about was, um, you know, normally when we do a cuisine, it's like, oh, we'll go out and eat in a cafe or a restaurant or we know a cafe or restaurant where we like to eat that is um <clears throat> you know, from that country. But in Pol- in Ireland, there's not evidently a lot of Polish restaurants or Polish cafes. No, it's not. But I think if we want to talk about when we talk about Polish cuisine, we have to look at Polish history. Yeah. And, you know, Poland, it's, you know, 
it, it's a big country in the moment and we were as big as from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea mm -hmm. and our borders were changing over the years. We had a good few wars. We have a neighbors are Germany and Russia. We are in central of Poland, of Europe. So we have loads of influence from different cuisines around the world and especially around Europe. So, you know, some flavors which I think are Polish, somebody might say absolutely not, they're Jewish or German or mm. as down as Turkey. Mm. You know, so these influences were extremely important. That's really interesting. I think I I wasn't really to think of the cuisine. I couldn't think off the top of my head of what Polish food is. So that probably explains it, that yeah. there's so many different influences in it. There was a different. <clears throat> what happened in the US was a different situation that happened in Ireland. So that immigration to the US was different. And now what you eat in the US is sometimes not even Polish anymore mm -hmm. because it's second and third generation, maybe fourth. Over here, I don't think we're long enough here to establish. Yeah. Or I don't think we, I don't think there's enough of us. You know, I don't think there's enough of us because Polish people eat on occasions in restaurants. You know, it's just coming to us now mm -hmm. that we can eat in restaurants every day. You know, me and my wife are lazy. We're going to go to a restaurant in Kilkenny and eat dinner in Kilkenny uh, out. And Polish people don't do that. So, like, we, I heard about a couple of attempts opening a Polish restaurant in, in Ireland. And they all failed. They all failed because there was not enough people. And I don't think Irish people are at that moment yet. Maybe in Dublin, but at that point yet, that, that they're going to go and, like, seek for Polish cuisine, you know? Mm -hmm. I think Polish and Irish people are similar in that when we go out to eat, we don't necessarily want to eat our own cuisine. We want to eat, you know... When you go out for dinner, you want to have Italian food or whatever, like, you know, as in you want to try something different. And I think maybe I, I don't know some Polish people have said to me that I don't want to go out and eat the food I can cook at home. Exactly. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Like I would never go to the Polish restaurant to eat Polish food because I believe I can do it better at home. And <laughs> friend of mine actually had the restaurant uh, 10 years ago. She opened with her ex-husband now in Waterford. And I had a chat with her yesterday and she said that there's a choice you kind of have to make if you make Polish Irish restaurant to right. appear more to the Irish population or you do Polish for Polish people. And she said that, you know, maybe as bigger city as Bart said in Dublin, that would work. Or I could see that there is a few restaurants, you would say Polish in Ireland, but they more are concentrating on Polish people. So even yeah. the menus would be in Polish. They advertise themselves on the Facebook in Polish. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's one in Dublin in the Moore Street uh, shopping center. OK, here's my pronunciation attempt. Gorash Gary Ubarbri Kushri. Oh, so that's... So, what? <laughs> you, you send that to me so that I tell you now. It's like Chinese. It's in blue there. I'm passing them so they can see it, so you, they can pronounce... Gorące gary u... Barbary kuchary. Barbary kuchary. Gorące gary u barbary kuchary. Okay, so I, I had that. That was way off. Yeah, yeah that, that that's a little bit tongue twister. It's like hot pots at Chef's Barbaras or something like oh, that. Right, yeah. Right. yeah, there was one in Cork. As you said, it's Irish-Polish called uh, Cork and Fork or Co-Mix. Um, and then we've seen some Polish bakeries. I found some Polish breads um, in like Londis or Centras or Super Values. 
And when I looked up, it's it's by a company called The Polish Bakery. Yeah, it's Limerick. It's big. Polish bakeries uh, usually originate from like from Limerick or somewhere around there. Okay, yeah. So I, I, I know a couple of people uh, that have bakeries, Polish bakeries. And I, I, like, I was offered a big warehouse bakery in Limerick from a Polish guy. Uh, because he just he's going back, so he's like, "Hey, you you want it?" And it's like, "No, yeah, no." It's a different style of bread. It's something else that that I do or we do. Did you want to open a a Polish bakery? N- no, we have a we used to have a Polish sourdough, something called Polish sourdough, and and, and of course I'm influenced by by how I was raised. But I learned how to make sourdough in Denmark. And I lived in Denmark with my wife for six years and we're kind of like international. So I always moved around. She's Filipino. She always moved around. So I I think our biggest influence is Denmark at at that moment, Scandinavia. Hmm. I just want to bring, sorry, I just want to sort of um, turn the conversation a little bit around because I I know we wanted to talk about both of you, how you grew up. This is why I asked about your age and, you know, and how that influenced your food and you know where you grew up and um and so if you know Camilla do you want to yeah start? of course so I had a little bit unusual upbringing uh, my parents managed to get divorced before I was born uh, and I was living with my mom up to age eight my mom was, was a doctor and she was a single mom so everything what we ate was very convenient she was busy, she, you know, as a single mother and working doctor, she didn't have enough time, you know, to concentrate on cooking probably as that much. And then she got sick and I was living with my aunt and everybody who were living that household were working full time. So everything was very convenient. My, I was living on the Baltic Sea in place called Gdynia and he was a captain on the big ship. So often he would bring the exotic stuff home you know that was in the middle of communism we are talking in early 80s so coffee and chocolate was brought from all over the world you know to to our household but then when i was eight my mom passed away and i started living with my dad my dad my grandmother and my stepmother but my stepmother and my grandmother weren't working so they had all the time to cook and they both believe that everything made from scratch, it's the best. So I believe I had a very privileged mm. time in my life that my grandma would make everything from scratch. We're talking about ketchup, homemade pasta, mayonnaise was always homemade. My dad as a lawyer was getting paid sometimes in like half a pig or half of the <laughs> lamb. That was which, common. You know, you couldn't buy meat, you know, everything was rational. So we had these things and I remember the kitchen table with a half a pig or, you know, a quarter of beef and my sister running around eating raw beef, loin, you know, or chewing on raw bones, which was very weird when you think about it, very cute four year old. And my dad as well built the house on the countryside. So we had the both, we had the city life and we had the country life. We had the neighbors which were farmers and Mrs. Teresa was her name, was making everything from scratch. So we had only homemade butter, homemade cottage cheese, cream, milk was straight from the cow. So mm. every evening we would go to Mrs. Teresa to get the milk. We would put the milk into containers, put the fridge. Following morning, you had the fresh cream. You take the cream from the top. And, you know, all the fruits were foraged or picked on her farm or bought from her. Eggs, bread. 
So we always ate very, very well, even in the hardest times. We weren't using much sugar. Our diet was very, very healthy. My great grandfather was a beekeeper and my grandmother was a beekeeper and my mm-hmm. father was a beekeeper. So the beekeeping brought, saved my family in the way and from the money from the beekeeping, my father could study. Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. So yeah. the honey was always a huge part of our lives. My dad is buying honey from the same man in Yavoje outside Tarnov. And when we were small and it was all of us, it's, uh, I have uh, two brothers and sister, we, he would buy 30, 40 liters of honey mm-hmm. every year. And on our kitchen table, we never had a bowl of sugar. We always had one liter jar of honey. So all the baking and food preparation would be with honey. Yeah. So that I think sounds, that was very, very privileged. Yeah, sounds idyllic. Almost, yeah, it? So idyllic. And I'm say, I'm visualizing already a cookbook, Camilla. It's yes. so beautiful. Well, I it's actually, idyllic, yeah. but it's in communism. So like, you know, you still have your ration. <laughs> but know, I'm I mean. saying, no, but she could do, I'm saying like with those stories, yes. you could make, you know, because you've also lived after communism, you could make this beautiful book. I mean, it's like I'm sitting here just... But yeah, like, you it, know, I took, I asked my dad for one thing and I actually brought it here with me, my great, great mother and my grandmother recipes. But the problem, the biggest problem with them is that they're only cakes and sweets. Oh, yeah. mm. Okay, there is a, a war mayonnaise, how to make mayonnaise in the middle of the war. There's a recipe for that. Wow. How to make mayonnaise without oil and eggs. That's you know, a vegan mayonnaise. Yeah. That's a ve- <laughs> kind yeah, of a vegan mayonnaise, war mayonnaise. <laughs> and you know, but the women in that times, they would never write the savory recipes and even the baking recipes that are nearly without the method because everybody knew how to of do course. it. Yeah. Right, yeah. So when I tried for the Harvest Festival a few years ago at Momo make an yeast a plum cake, which my grandmother used to make, there was the recipe, but there was no method. It was Just disaster. I didn't know that you have to feed the yeast. Hmm. You know, and yeah, so it, 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 it's challenging and I, I I wish I would learn more. I could learn more from my from my grandmother and from yeah. my stepmother. Bart, can you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself? Your background, yeah. <clears throat> okay, our stories are not that different. So I also had two working parents. You're younger. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm younger. Six years, yeah. So, <clears throat> but I remember growing up this the the collapse the system changed i was five so you know barely but it was always so we lived in apartment blocks and there was an auntie which some of her real aunties some of them were just friends of my mom and but everybody's an auntie and uncle until this day when i see him it's aunt and uncle Uh, and everybody kind of had a task in the apartment block and uh, half a big present or, or like a quarter of a cow present in the house was nothing uncommon. You know, it was it was quite okay to have that. Yeah. Uh, honey, the, 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 except aunts and aunties, there was like a lady, pani, it's called. So there was a a cream lady. There was a butter lady. You know, okay. there's the honey guy. Yeah. You know, <laughs> because it was predominantly like, like from my experience in Poland, a male thing. Uh, doing honey you know uh so there was there was a, a wine guy you know there was like a guy for everything and everything was made from scratch and there also there, there was also my grandma 
who did everything from scratch. And we had a plot of land where we grew all of our vegetables, you know, jauka, you mm -hmm. know, like we have like we, we had allotments. Yeah, allotments, yeah. yeah. We had like two or two or two or three of them. And my grandpa, when he retired, like he was just running it. And my mom was a very passionate farmer and uh, or was. And uh, everything was grown. So all the jams were made in the house. Uh, all the fruit were fresh herbs, carrots. Like you were, you would be surprised how much vegetables you can grow on an allotment like yeah. that, you know. Uh, so, yeah, similar experiences, uh, really everything made from scratch. I think that shaped me to to like why I'm cooking today. You know, I didn't realize it back then. Or like now we have a farm that we grow vegetables on for the restaurant. Mm -hmm. And when we started the farm, like... That's on High Bank. Yeah, that's in High Bank Orchards, yeah, with, okay. with Julian Rod. And it was like, Bart, how do you know all these things? And I was like, I don't know. I just know how to grow shit. Yeah. <laughs> And so in Denmark, I've, I became a butcher for, for a couple of years. And on my, like, I had no experience in professional butchery, you know, we, we used to make Italian charcuterie there. So it was specific cuts that were needed, you know. Yeah. But the guy that run the, like, that was running the show was Polish called Peter. Peter Friday. <laughs> <laughs> what a great name. And uh, so I came for a trial. And it's just like, he just put a quarter of a pig in front of me. It's like, yeah, do your thing, you know, cut the muscles out. And you know what? I just did it. I just did it and got the job. I just instinctively, you, you just, you just, because it's, you don't remember it. You don't know about it. But, and being a chef didn't help me. Like, okay, how to handle a knife. Yes, that helped. But, you know, chefs these days, they don't do pigs. Mm -hmm. You know, you get pre-packed, pre-cut pieces of meat or like you can get a loin pre-cut, like, but, but it's still a loin. You don't see the bones. You don't see anything. Uh, involved in an animal and then there I am just like working my way around and and then cutting the big ham cutting the small ham out cutting everything and I was like yeah you got the job great where did I get it from probably from over there yeah and when we were speaking earlier about how you know the difference you guys have a similar background growing up in Poland but what's the like from one generation to the next or the gap that you're talking about because of the different times in Polish history, um, you know, do you feel like with the next generation or generation above you or below you have a completely different story and relationship? Camila remembers more of the misery. <laughs> I do, and I do remember. Not to, sorry, not to bring up the misery, but you no, know. But I do remember, you know, the little pieces of paper we were getting every month, I think, you know, with the rations that you can't get things, you know. I, I, I don't remember that. And I remember going to a shop that was only vinegar on the shelves. And I had to stand in the queues. And I remember ladies in the queue arguing that there is only only 950 grams of sugar in the bag, not a kilo, you yeah. know, and that 50 grams was so important because that would be another two cups of tea, you know, you could put the sugar in. So it, everything was very, very limited, but I think that made everything a little bit, I don't know, I think the communism what did to Polish people, communism was trying to kill the arts. When you think mm -hmm. about the arts, you think about food, music, mm. paintings, mm. everything which was not necessary. We were eating to be fed, not to enjoy. So there was no art in it. There was no finesse. We couldn't get basic things like spices and, uh, you know, anything mm. exotic from outside Poland. My brother, who was born in 83, 
so more or less in Bart's age, he was getting every year for Christmas a packet of raisins. And that was the biggest treat because we couldn't get raisins. Right. Hmm. So, you know, we would get oranges. I remember oranges. Oranges <laughs> were for Christmas and you would get one orange. Yeah. You know, I remember for the start when the exotic fruits arrive in Poland, you will get a banana. And because it was six of us, I have a two brothers and sisters, so we would get a banana each and we would fight over it. <laughs> you know, when my dad would buy the fancy yogurts arrive to Poland, you know, we would be told it's one yogurt per person. So everything was very rationed. So food wasn't a, an art. It wasn't something people thought about. It, it was mm. more about being fed. And even I remember when I was very quite, quite fussy, when I started with my dad, I was told by my stepmother that food is not for liking, food mm. is for eating. Hmm. You don't eat because you want to, you eat because you're hungry. So, and I think people in my age, we are, have this Polish complex, what I called with my friends, that we have this feeling inside that we are not good enough, that everything what is outside Poland, it's so much better. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm right or wrong. Many people might disagree with me, but this is kind of weight from the communism that you are just, you know, we couldn't travel, we couldn't experience. And there was no restaurants in Poland. In yeah. that time, there were these basic milk bars. Mm-hmm. There was no art in a finesse. But when you look at the history of Poland, our cuisine was so rich mm-hmm. and so full we can start from early 16th century. Our queen was from Italy. So Królowa Bona arrived from Italy to Poland, which Poland was just meat and quite heavy orientated country. And she wanted something lighter. So she brought loads with her. Yeah. The love for the vegetables and lighter cuisine. And then we had the Ludwig and we had the big influence from France and from all over the world. So it was very rich and interesting cuisine. And I think communists tried to kill it. So there's a, there's a, I have a nice story to, to, to uh, connect. So I'm from a town called Słupsk originally. And uh, there's, there's this thing in Pomorze, that's the region where I'm from, called Pugensek. And that's a, a cured and smoked uh, duck breast. You know, and a little maybe a little bit dry. And I was like, I was when I was researching researching in Denmark because I was making them. Like, why do we have this? You know, why the love of geese? So it it came out that the region that I lived in was the region that livers for foie gras for France were made in the 16th 17th century. Oh wow! And the surplus of duck meat mm. was so big that everybody uh, sorry uh, goose. Uh, goose meat was so big that like everybody just ate goose. You know, it was it was a byproduct of making livers for foie gras. So that's why we have uh, uh, in that region the love uh, or love of uh, geese and ducks. Wow. So and that was yeah that, that was, I think it was 16th 17th century. Imagine so. the goose is the actual byproduct. Like that's yeah. that's yeah. incredible. And that brings us nicely onto kind of like your favorite foods in terms of. I love hearing your descriptions of different foods. I'd love to hear more mm. of that. Like, um, Camilla, I guess going back to you first, what are your favorite foods from or dishes that you remember from growing up? Or I don't know why, but since I was very young, maybe because I was spending most of my time when I was living with my mom with adults, with grown-ups, not around children, and I love strong flavors. 
you know, people would look at me, how can you eat pickled herring for breakfast, you know, or very strong blue cheese. There is no flavor too strong for me. And I love my grandma's uh, barsht, Christmas barsht. That was the most beautiful thing ever. And her uh, rabbit or her uh, pate, which she would make, you know, and then you have... Uh, go back to like things like a horseradish and so on. So that the separate flavors, which mm. I still love and adore. And I wouldn't say that I have like one favorite Polish dish, but of everything which is pickled and fermented, I yeah. absolutely love. And I love the amount of the cold meats we have in Poland. And it's not only ham cooked or smoked. It's so many different types of sausages and cold meats, and I love it. And the use of herbs, which in my house were would always very, very important. And sometimes when I look at the Jewish cuisine, you'll be like, that's not Jewish, that's Polish, that's mine. <laughs> I, I grew up on that. I have a friend who is a, uh, who has the Meze restaurant in, in Tramor. And when we talk about food, it's like the same language, the same things which I miss and I, I love. love. Meze, it's so good. You know, like a, my grandma used to make the rose jam. And in Poland, we use loads of rose mm -hmm. jams and these flavors. But they obviously didn't come from Poland. You know, the yeah. influence from other parts of the world and the Jewish community in my house was quite strong maybe because my dad loves Jewish culture and he's a little bit obsessed about it. So I think that, and even when I came over here and there was this big boom for the healthy eating and fermenting and grains, I was like, and foraging. And I was like, yeah. oh, come on, you did you discover the foraging? Like, it's like, oh, we're going to ferment this, we're going to ferment this. And it's like, hmm. Yeah, that's nothing new for me. We grew up on that. It's not so not. So exciting, every normal Polish person knows about fermenting and pickling and eating grains. But does it, doesn't that make you wonder how much of uh, a cuisine is about how it's marketed? Because you do mm. see all these obsession with like pickling and fermenting. And you're like, have you gone to the Polish store? Have you seen what they have? Have you tasted it? It's just amazing. And people, like they sell it to you as a new like trend oh but my it's trends God. that's what yeah. i was going to say it, 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 it did it, not it, come yeah. from for us weren't we influenced by denmark so yeah, yeah, back, yeah. Like, you it were was, you were yeah so noma and everything that was happening over there i mean that influenced the chefs here which suddenly foraging i used to, i remember when foraging first became a thing as a food writer i was like i don't know when i was growing up we just picked fruit i've done that since i was so small and suddenly i had to call it foraging like it was a thing it's yeah. fancy so it has been here but it was as Blanca just said, it was marketed back yeah. to us like something new. But a lot of Irish people were like, actually, hang on, we have been doing that. Now, the pickling obviously is in Irish food a long time ago, but that was kind of lost over generations. Um, only some people like you might be stories of grandmothers or things I, like that. But everybody, I think in Poland and Bart would agree, even when you were living in apartment building, we had the, everybody had a little piece of the cellar which would be filled with preserves wine. and wine <laughs> and you would buy potatoes for winter and so on. So like even when we opened Momo and we, I started making salads and I would using millet and buckwheat and bulgur wheat and so on, people first were looking at me like, why would you use that? This is like nearly like a prison food, you know, nobody mm. here would eat that. And then the health shops and 
so on, bombed and, you know, everybody are obsessed with millet and buckwheat and the quinoa is not as that <laughs> attractive anymore. And I'm like, why would you eat quinoa if you can eat millet or buckwheat exactly. or bulgur wheat, mm. you know? Yeah. And in the Polish shops, it's so much cheaper than the health shops. And nicer. And yeah. nicer. Yeah. nicer. Yeah. Yeah. And Bart, what about you for favorite foods or would you have similar stories? For favorite foods, I think I have two stages. I have when I was a boy and when I grew up Hmm. because I liked sweet. I remember when I was growing up, I I remember sweet things and mushrooms being my favorite things. Uh, But right now, I am a very simple guy. I I, I just like gawampki, which is Hmm. meat and rice wrapped in cabbage, cooked in tomato sauce, braised in tomato sauce. Hmm. And then like tribe soup, flaky. Hmm. Uh, you, you know, and th- those are my two favorite things. From, but like, also, I you once I think talked to me about like this um, when the, when you had the half of a pig, you would have this um, brace. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, you, you explained it to me so. But but, but you know, but that's not that's a that's a favorite speciality kind of thing. So when you kill a pig, and when all the auntie, aunts and aunties uh, go to your house, there's something called świeżynka, and it's only made after killing a pig. So it's pigs skin, uh, pig's fat, and all the like off-cut meat, you know, all the bits and bobs that you that you have from, from slaughtering the pig. And then you melt some pig fat, pork fat, and then you just braise it with onions in that pork fat. And you just get a plate of that with a piece of bread. Wow. And yeah, and, and it's just insanely delicious, insanely fat. And usually it's made for adults. Not the, I remember it as a kid. But it's made for adults to drink. You know, it's a good it, to drink vodka. You know, for oh, the yeah. guys. To, yeah, it's like there's a lot of <laughs> to fat line to, down your stomach. Yeah, basically. to line down your stomach. So it's it's a it's a when you grow up, you realize it's a drinking thing. You know, the okay. whole dish is made to to drink with it. Wow. So there's like pickled cucumbers, that piece of bread, and vodka. little shot glasses and, and, vodka. and vodka. Yeah, vodka yes. Um, I just want to, and I know both of you, and especially Camilla, have ta- uh, touched on this, but the link between Polish foods and Jewish foods. Does anyone want to start that? Because for me... I have I a can... favorite Jewish restaurant in Gdańsk, or Sopot. I don't know. I, oh. I haven't been there in for... where? Gdańsk, I think. Yeah, maybe, I, I don't know, because I, I, I used to live on, on uh, where Bart is from, but I I'm, I spent the last six years in Poland, the Jewish quarter in Krakow. So there will be a good few Jewish restaurants, obviously. And they were, they were the first in Jewish quarter, which always existed. Is it a big part of Polish food, Jewish food? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. It's, it's Excuse me. It's, it just changed after the war. You know, war, the, the Second World War changed everything. We had... Um, massive Jewish communities uh, present all over Poland and and between like it's something called the 20 years between the wars was one of the one of the best culinary periods in Polish history mm-hmm. you know so after the first world war and just before the second world war that was one like books from cookbooks from that time uh, go for crazy money right now you know, for, co- for 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 collectors, because that was when we de- like Poland developed a very very like high end cuisine kind of on on an international wow. um, level. Yeah. Uh, and 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 Jewish Jewish uh, influence was very present at that as well. 
I love Jewish cuisine. Me too. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, for, in my house, we grew up on it. Like we always had matzah in our house. Matzah was like, you know, everyday thing. It was probably because... Camilla, can you explain what matzah is for our listeners? It's like a dry bread, crackery thing, you know, and you eat it with <laughs> butter or with butter and honey, or you just eat it as a cracker. It, it doesn't have an extra flavor, so it's yeah. very versatile, yeah. you know. You can eat it sweet and you can eat it savory. And it was always in the same press with bread in my house. I don't remember mm. the day. I had it too. I had matzah mm. as well. It's it's just flour, salt, and water. Mm. There's no leaven in it. And it's just put on a hot piece of metal. With a specific kind of lines. Yeah, yeah. Like I had it square. I yeah. don't know. You yeah, always yeah, had yeah. a square, but there were little <laughs> lines between so you could crack it easily. Yeah, yeah, Well, because yeah. it's the only bread that you Jewish people are allowed to eat during Passover, right? Because it's unleavened. You know, it's like, so they have to stay away from grains and they have to stay away from leavening. Mm-hmm. So like everyone's just like basically, I mean, most of my Jewish friends are fed up with matzah um, by the end of it. But um, but it is it is the classic Passover sort of starch. Mm. Mm. And what other what, what other they... things? So we would have halva as as a treat, yeah. you yeah. know. So we were always told this is very sweet and full of fat, so we can't eat too much. But that was, you know, you would bite. I don't know where they were buying, but it was in this like blocks, uh, or sometimes in the can, and we would get the little little piece of it. And I remember loving it. And then of course, you know, the rose flavors, and then the use of dill and mint. So I remember watching Otelengi cooking program one day and when he was talking about the food and flavors, I was like, that's mine. Yeah. This is how I grew up. This is what we eat. And then, of course, we have hauka or, you know, the, all, all the babka or the yeast mm. breads, the sweet breads, uh, the yeast cakes, as I call it in, in my house, Ciasta Drozdrowe. That's, that, that, that's, I feel like it's Polish, but I know that it's not really and then poppy seeds probably as well, and yeah. then using yeah. candy orange and raisins and uh, and nuts. And again, going back to meat, because I like meat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, birds, 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 uh, geese and ducks are are very common on a Jewish menu. Herrings, pickled herrings. Yeah. I wouldn't. I, I I didn't read into it to a level that I don't know which came first. Was it Polish herring or Jewish herring, or you know, but but pickled fish, fish in general, and uh, birds are are, are present in abundance yeah. on 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 a Jewish menu. You know. But what is interesting as well, what I like about Polish cuisine, and even when we when you describe dishes on every in every Polish cookbook, you're gonna find the recipe for Jewish style fish, ryba po żydowsku, or you have a fish mm-hmm. in Greek style, or you have ruskie pierogi, so pierogi Russian style. So even though we got these influences from different parts of the world, different we countries, think it's ours. but we still put the name on it. We still say that there are. Uh, riba, pog, uh, give them credit. We give them credit. We mm. don't take the credit away, I think, as much. Fasolka mm. po bretońsku, Breton style beans, you know. So I, I think it's quite nice. And what I noticed when I was going through my great grandma, my grandmother recipe books, that when is the recipe, there is the name where that recipe came from. So you have a cake by Catherine. 
uh, cookies by Mary. So often when uh, housewives were exchanging the recipes, so, you know, you would be invited to somebody's house for the dinner party and you really like the cake or pate or whatever, you would take the recipe but you would give them the credit. Yeah, my mom has the same thing. Yeah, when, when you look through my mom's. And it's also, I have to say the same thing. My mom, when she writes down recipes, there's no method. And there's always a name. Who's the recipe from? Yeah. And it's always, almost almost like 99% is for cakes. Yes. There's there's no savory there. Savory there. Yeah, there's it's just cakes, 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 cakes. Yeah. I'm just going to interrupt our conversation for a second because it's time for us to tell all our listeners about another amazing podcast on the network. Um, it's called Phoning It In and it's a hilarious improvised, uh, improvised phone-in show um, which is on each week as host Dave Coffey feels a collection of calls from a bunch of cranks, oddballs and weirdos. This sounds absolutely hilarious. Dave is joined in studio by regular guests who lend him some expert advice to the callers. So again, it's a weekly podcast and it features some of Ireland's best comedians and improvisers. And it sounds like just a bunch of on-air fun. So Mm. tune in for that. Phoning It In is back. Hello, my name is Dave Coffey and I'm the host of Phoning It In, the hilarious improvised phone-in show. Think Joe Duffy meets your favourite Irish comedians. Our first episode back is already out and features the young hot guys, Tony Cantwell, Shane Dan Byrne and Killian Sunderman. This season we'll also have lots of bonus material available on Headstuff Plus, including new improv style games with all your favourite guests. Phoning It In is available every fortnight wherever you get your podcasts and on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. So uh, coming back then to you guys, um, I... I guess we wanted to, we have a love of soup in spice bags and uh, the three of us have been exploring soup recently and it seems like there's a lot of Polish love for soup as well. Am I right? And Jewish. And Jewish. So can one of you tell me a little bit about a soup or Polish several soups? Or several (laughs) soups? Soup is ever present. Soup is a starter. Soup is in, uh, you can't have a dinner party and a family, you know, gathering without the soup. You have to have a soup, otherwise you don't have a dinner. Okay. That's not a meal without the soup. Would it be a starter, a main, or is it just a a course? It's always a starter, has to be. You might have another starter, you might have a cold starter before or after, but you have to have a soup. But you have to have soup. You have to have a soup. And what would they be, what would be the most iconic Polish soup? Rosu. Rosu. Chicken soup. And what ingredients would it have? Chicken. <laughs> no, but there's a lot of chicken soups. Mays always no, when it, when I'm eating chicken soup, she's like Jewish. I'm like, no, it's uh, it's this Colombian. Is a very, this is a very Jewish soup for me. So it's a it's a chicken consomme. So it needs okay. to be clear. This okay. is chudnik. Is that how you pronounce it? Rosu. Rosu. Sorry, okay. sorry. And it's served with pasta, ma- pasta like macaroni. We call it macaron. So okay. like mm-hmm. it's it's pasta. And I also remember my grandma used to always make and dry handmade pasta mm. you know always ever mm. present um, every Sunday rosu, rosu and, and, then and you have some, pasta and then you have some vegetables in it you might have a, like a chopped yeah. carrot or parsnip or peas yeah. or you know something colorful swimming around yeah but but there's a very specific way of how you need how you make it to make it clear so like you mm-hmm. you kind of pre-boil the chicken a little bit and then you drain that water you wash the chicken and you put it again and then you don't really ever put it to the boil and then you add vegetables at a certain point so they become not mushy but like 
crunchy so you can slice them later and use them as a garnish or they swim in the soup. There's the King's Russell and that has green peas for some reason in it. Uh, but yeah, it does. <laughs> I, I make a really weird version of Russell in, in, my, in my house here, my daughter's favorite thing. And it's so wrong that if any oh, my Russell, person, my Russell is so wrong as well. Oh, uh, but you know what I do because I I like I I I'm I'm a food snob, so I like expensive chickens. So when I buy expensive organic chicken, I feel like I can't waste anything. So yeah. after I roast the chicken, whatever bones I have in the carcass, I just make a stock out of it, mm-hmm. and that becomes in our house chicken noodle soup as my daughter calls it. And normally we would use orzo or whatever small pasta in it. And she absolutely loves it. And has the, the, the stock from the chicken when you make your own mm. stock, it, it's so delicious. But it's what I do at home in Ireland, it's nothing to do with the lovely, beautiful, clear, Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, rosso consomme, you know? Yeah, I, because I married a Filipino. Mm-hmm. Uh, like for her, rosso tastes like, um, like a soup that you eat when you're sick like a flu yes. soup yeah. right so when I make rosso in the house I just I just use chicken legs or something something gelatinous with a lot of fat and I don't care if it's clear or not it's for my own consumption you know uh, but then we add ginger soy sauce <laughs> lemongrass chilies and that's rosso in, in my household right Very now it, it's evolving it's evolving because uh, the people in the household are, are evolving <laughs> i think i make a version of it myself yeah. by the sounds <laughs> of it i have, do that yeah. as well yeah we all have our chicken soup um but i think in asia it's more of a food that you have when you're when you're ill i wanted to ask you about beetroot soup oh. in poland and tell me a little bit about chotnik Chodnik. 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 Yeah. Oh, that's, that's what I was trying to say earlier. Sorry, bro. Sorry. <laughs> but that's but that's a young stem beetroot. That's not really, that's Ooh. that's not beetroot beet. That's not okay. the the bulb, right? It's, uh, it's so the 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 chodnik normally it's made with the young beetroots and with using the leaves, which we call botfinka. So we are using whole beetroot, including the leaves and oh. the and, and and the stem. So you chop them. So in in my head, there are three different. Uh, beetroot soups when I look at Poland. So we have the chłodnik for the summertime, which it's served cold and would be with kefir or, you know, like with dairy and it's lovely and creamy and it's loads of dill. Yeah. You might serve with boiled egg. Then you have Ukrainian style uh, beetroot soup, which is my favorite as well, which is loads of vegetables in it. And then you have the one which I love as well because I love uh, beetroot soup. It's the Christmas one, which is made using the wild mushroom stock in my household anyway. Yeah, yeah. And mm. then you ferment beetroot. So you start to preparing it two weeks ahead. So you ferment beetroots and you use that water as added to the stock, but in my house, maybe it's wrong. You always have to be very careful. So you would make this beautiful wild mushroom stock and then you add the fermented beetroot water. I think it's the easiest way and to it can And it can never boil. You never boil because otherwise change the color and loses the, the goodness. The health. Yeah. And what's the name of that one? That's the Christmas it. borscht. Oh, just Christmas, Christmas borscht. Christmas are they all, and so they're all borscht? Or yeah, they, yeah, yeah, like except Bar- chodnik. It's a chodnik, okay. Yeah. And wow. then there's also white borscht, but that's fermented bread flour. Yes. <laughs> wow. Fermented beet flour. Bread flour. Bread, bread flour. It's so, more like okay. a rye. And that's I a soup also. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's a soup just made thickened with uh, with fermented. So you ferment flour and water like you, like you would make a fermented pickle. You mm. know, it's like 
to be specific, three percent salt, water, you know, your your substrate, so your 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 flour, and you pickle it in water, just like you would pickle a vegetable. And when it becomes acidic, you add it to boiling water, and it becomes soup. a thick soup. And you, know? you serve it with again boiled egg yeah. or sausage and loads of herbs, and it's quite unusual, but absolutely delicious, and has this lovely sour flavor. There so was, when oh. can we come over? Sorry, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm available next weekend and the weekend after. Sorry. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> these soups, I am absolutely yeah, blown I was, away. I, I want to try all these soups. I am selfishly going to ask one of you to describe the sorrel soup. I don't know how to pronounce yeah. it. Sorrel, yeah, yeah. So, so, so again, you, you go to the back of your garden and you, you, <laughs> you pick some sorrel and you make a soup. You know, we have a cucumber soup. Uh, which is made from fermented cucumber gorkans, which is very popular in Poland as well. And a funny story, I always thought that they, they served sorrel soup with egg. Like, probably they did because it tastes good with egg, just a hard-boiled egg. A lot of soups have hard-boiled mm. eggs in it. Yeah. But actually, sorrel depletes your... Uh, your Iron? Or? Yeah, or something. Oh. And then the egg tastes good with it, but the eggs also replaces the... The deficit because it digests slower, oh. but that was proven later. So nutritionally, on. it's it's balanced. Yeah, is what you're saying. Yeah, okay. Ah, Jesus, I hadn't had and, and and so, yeah, for but, but ages. It, it's just it's a lovely green soup, you know. Yeah. I wouldn't say that it would be very like specific, because a little bit sour has a little bit acidic flavor. Mm. Because I remember when my grandma would send me to the back of the garden, pick some sorrow, and I was like, "Is that this?" So you, you pick and you taste it. I'm like, mm, "Oh yeah, that tastes like sorrow." Yeah. So I like sorrow. I love sorrel. I think it's it's you know yeah. I love the lemony sort of flavor, and I love a little bit know. acidity. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And is are is that do you guys are they your favorite soups or do you have a favorite soup? No, mine is tripe soup, as I said. Oh, tripe, tripe soup. Yes. Tripe soup. Yeah. yeah. That's um, a very not everybody likes that. And is it with tomato? How is it made? No, no, it's not. It's again, it's a broth. And oh, okay. Like, so my mom used to make like an upgraded version, so it, it had meat in it as well as tripe. But usually it's just uh, the lining of a cow's stomach or a pig's stomach, uh, pre-processed. You know, these days nobody processes it in the house because it's stinky. Mm -hmm. It's really stinky and it's a long, long process. So you just buy it in. Uh, and then it's it, it's a it's a broth with a lot of moiram with uh, it's a it's a broth made on beef or on pork with the tripe in it, uh, carrots, onions, and then a ton of marjoram more marjoram 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 yeah tripe is also uh, quite Irish I suppose especially people would say in Ireland it's a very cork thing uh, there's a traditional cork dish made with tripe as well so it's actually it is actual tripe and I suppose that kind of brings me nicely on to when you guys moved here and emigrated to Ireland did you First of all, did you identify at all any similarities with Irish cuisine with Polish when when you moved here, or how have you seen maybe that change now? Or that, like like how long, Camilla? You've been here twenty years, nearly seventeen, eighteen years. So for me, when I came over to Ireland, it was, uh, if I'm honest with you, I really didn't like Irish food. Mm. I I felt that everything it's lack of flavor. I didn't have enough money to buy the good for quality products. You know, mm. so you know, I remember eating sandwich with tomatoes and putting ketchup on it because tomatoes <laughs> didn't taste of anything. 
they were not like mm. tomatoes in Poland. I, I hated the Irish bread, you know, the, the, the sliced pan. It was nothing what I was used to in Poland. And I didn't know enough about Irish food. And I remember even looking at the beef in the supermarket thinking like, I can't buy it. It's definitely colored. I've never seen meat in that deep red color mm. because we don't really eat as, as much beef in Poland. So I've never really experienced that beautiful, dark, mature meat. Yeah. You will know more about it. But honestly, I, I was scared to buy beef when I came over to Ireland. The, the, I agree 100% with the beef thing. Like you, you come in here and you look at the beef and it's like, wow. And the, and the flavor of the beef is different. But mm. for, And I had similar similar experiences, you know, so I didn't under. But I was young. I didn't understand Irish cuisine, first of all. You know, back then, it was on a different stage than it is now. Yes. It didn't have as much of an identity, I don't think. Yeah. It's been, no. it's been defined now as such, yes. you know. So when I when I got served boiled pork belly and peas mm. and mash, I was like, fuck's this? <laughs> and you know, the parsley uh, sauce from the packet, you know. <laughs> but that was, you know, when you don't have money and you can't afford to go to the nice places or you don't know anything about it, you often eat... I grew Very up on poorly. packet soup, a parsley packet soup. I, li- I like parsley much. sauce. I, <laughs> oh, I can't stand it. I'm sorry. And, <laughs> and I, I didn't mind the bread because I like toast a lot. But uh, there was some things that I didn't like, but there was a lot of things in the culture that I did like, you know, and uh, fish and chips is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so was it an obvious, you both own your own, run your own businesses. Was that... I suppose a natural progression or was that out of a uh, some other reason or can you I suppose each part if you want to go first on how you came to own your own business setting up a business here in Ireland we so we were living in Denmark and we got offered a percentage in the restaurant that we used to run over there and we kind of sat down as like okay what do we want to do and we decided because our honeymoon one of our honeymoons because we had two was driving around like just Ireland and I was like Nicole I used to live there you know like for for like eight years I, it's a cool place like we like let's let's try it you know so we moved and because Nicole is Filipino uh, so we scrapped that idea over there in Denmark yeah. uh, because I it was mostly me because I never got to know Danish as I wanted Nicole knows Danish but uh for me, raising our kids with Danish being their dominant language and me knowing good English but not knowing good Danish, I, I, I saw it in the future as a problem. Yeah. You know, now we have four dogs and still don't have kids, but that's a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we decided to, and the, Nicole's first language is also English. Yeah. So, you know, Ireland, and because I was raised over here, was an obvious kind of choice. And we saw the niche in the market in Kilkenny. Mm. So we we moved and we always wanted to open something, but it wasn't supposed to be that quick. Nicole said, listen, we're opening something or we're moving back yeah. to Norway or we're moving back to Scandinavia or we're moving to my friends in America. I like, we're doing something. I was like, okay. So we, we took loans in four countries and like a lot of <laughs> private loans. Uh, open whatever we could, you know. Uh, and Iran was born. And Iran yeah. was born, you know. And Camilla, did you tell us you're setting up your business, Momo Restaurant? Obviously, you open it with your husband. Yes, Harry. yes, we are, we have it with Harris. So you see, for me, when I when I said first, I don't want to, uh, you, I want to be be straight with you guys. 
when I came over to Ireland, Irish food was a challenge for me, but I was open enough to learn. And I discover all this amazing produce and things which are much better than in Poland, much better than anywhere else in the world. I remember going with my kids to Spain and look, my son asked for a sandwich and he said to me, Mommy, I don't like mayo. And I'm like, that's not mayo, that's butter. But why it's white? You know, mm. so little things like the best dairy and beef and lamb, it's in Ireland. And then I, I started working so I am a special needs assistant. I have a master's degree in special education and I worked a little bit in the childcare in Ireland. And in the end of the day, I'm a bar person. I worked in Jeff's bar and five or six restaurants in less than four years in Waterford. Mm -hmm. And I was getting frustrated and, you know, working for other people. I was getting to the age when I wanted to work for myself. And I sold my mom's apartment in Poland. I had a little bit of money. My husband, Harry, wanted to buy a house. And I said to him, if, I, if you buy the house, I will be working for other people for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I could see a, 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 a big hole in the market for all the vegetarian and vegan people or people who have a different dietary requirements. In Ireland, it was very little for them. So we, my daughter actually was quite sick and she was in Kremlin Hospital in, Waterf sorry, in Dublin. And I saw the place where I used to manage that that space was free. And I was like, now or never, because yeah. I was trying to get a different property in Waterford for nearly a year and I was getting very frustrated. So we did it. I <laughs> thought that I know everything about running restaurant. I knew absolutely nothing. nothing. <laughs> I thought that I have so much money, 20,000 euros without the kitchen and clue. And yes, so it was I don't know how we did it. So we knew that we wanted to be for everybody in mean that I wanted to have a vegetarian and vegan options and a little bit healthier and something different and the full flavor. And I didn't want to be fake. My love for the Irish produce was huge. I met Sarah from Siegel Bakery through art years earlier. Love and I that. remember when I tasted her sourdough first and it was, I think, two or three months before we opened Momo and Sarah was one of the first people who I told that we, we got the place and I'm going to open the restaurant. And I said it to her, that was seven years ago, I want to buy your bread and I don't want anybody else's bread. In that time, she had a little shed in the back garden. Yeah. And she was like, how am I going to do it? But there's no way. I was like, we're going to figure this out. You know, so the local suppliers, the produces in Ireland, the seafood, which I didn't know anything about. First time I had scallops and mussels and oysters what's here mm. i never cook it i didn't grow up with that fresh mackerel in poland i grew up on the smoked mackerel mm. so that was like a like a candy store you know yeah. all this producer has this amazing food it's what you're renowned for now though isn't it? it's your producers you're you're literally because we can't do anything them. without them mm. like you can't produce amazing food with bad ingredients with cheap ingredients, you can't. When you have buy amazing fruit, vegetables, meat, seafood, they speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. You don't have to mess around with them, you know? So for us, as I say, it's weird that we are international cuisine. We have influences from all over the world. But the main thing for us is to use Irish produce because this is what I fell in love with. And when we opened first, people would say, oh, yeah, you are a Polish restaurant because you have a beetroot on the menu. <laughs> And I was, I was the only Polish person in the building. You know, uh, it's changed. Now my head chef is Michael and he's Slovakian and we sometimes speak the same language, sometimes different language. But he gets me and he gets my flavors and the flavors combinations. And 
yeah and i'm really happy that i'm here and i wouldn't like to be anywhere else that's what sold nicole as well to open a place here that's what sold nicole to move my wife to move to ireland so we went a couple of years ago we went to foot on the edge i think it was five or six one of yeah it was there was a huge producer village mm. Mm. i was there as well and in the theater yes yeah and that producer village sold her on moving because there's so much raw ingredient that's good that's like insanely good you know and cheese and dairy all of that you know you can work with that when you're a chef and we're both chefs so yeah. you can work with that you really can mold it into something nice we actually did a little scour around the country to see you know when we talked about how there aren't many Polish restaurants or cafes, but there are some. And as you said, there's some people doing Polish Irish, but there's actually a lot of Polish people working in the restaurant industry in Ireland, in the food industry in Ireland. Um, you know, I know even Camilla, you and I were speaking about the old couch cafe. Yes, Przemek. And um, yeah, we were talking about them. And then I noticed that there is also a lot of head chefs actually that are Polish in Ireland as well. I'm not going to start naming them all out, but there we had quite a, a long list. And it's really interesting to see that a lot of chefs in particular have gotten, my point is, I wonder, is it that same thing that you guys have realized is the love of the produce here? You know, they want to cook with that. A lot of them, I can see that they're working in restaurants that they're not cooking Polish cuisine. They're, I mean, sure, they're bringing their own um uh, Polish influence into the menu but they're using that core Irish ingredients so maybe it's a similarity there perhaps of a recognition of good produce for, between the countries Did you have anybody Polish helping you with the research for restaurants? No myself and May did that So you see what well, you missed from myself yeah. and Camilla <laughs> chatting and So what, I think what you missed uh, and I think it's very important for Polish yeah. people in Ireland you know and, and for, for if we have a Polish podcast Maybe there's not a lot of restaurants, but you need to go to the underbelly. You need to go to the. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> you need to go to the Facebook forums. Oh yeah. Right, you know, and this is where you find Polish food. Okay. And like slash slash illegal produ illegal producers. Okay. That make smoked meats. That make pickled vegetables. That okay. make soups. That pickle. That that pick mushrooms that pickle meat in jars, that like make pierogies, but it's not, you'll never see it. Mm -hmm. It's in the back. Okay. So there is a kind of underbelly community of food mm -hmm. Polish food producers and that here, but it's just not in the mainstream because I presume all of the, the we all know all the hoops you have to jump through to get a business and set up here and health and safety and stuff like that. So they're just on the, producing it for themselves, for friends, for community. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's not, it's, they don't, these people don't want to own a business. Yeah. It's a, like a side hustle, you know? Yeah. But we have one of the big issues that we have sometimes in spice bags is we find people, but a lot of the times they're making this amazing product, but they don't want to come forward because they're like, I'm just doing this for my friends yeah. or whatever. So we do see this, brought to them, you know? we do see this across in every country we have studied. We find people like that and we find it fascinating. But the problem we had with Polish, because we do, you know, between us speak quite a few languages, but with Polish, we contacted like the Polish center in Dublin. We looked at Kultura. The problem was it was inaccessible also because of the language. And if you talk about those Facebook forums, I can find those like for 
I don't know, like for Brazil, even for for Brazilian and Portuguese, I can understand more or less what they're talking about, but I can find the Venezuelan or Colombian. But with Polish, we were like, whoa. So, yeah, we've seen that pattern that and and this is one thing we discussed in Food on the Edge is like, how could we bring these people? Is there some type of like starter, like a place that we could help these people start these businesses? Because some people do want to come out and they can't. I think, I think, listen, and Camila, I bet you're going to agree with me on this one. The way the system is constructed for a small, small business is horrendous. It's horrendous, mm. yeah. And the the liabilities and, and the laws and even the grants. I was rejected two grants, mm-hmm. you know, when I was hoping around. <laughs> so, uh, you, so the system doesn't help. Is what this, you're saying, the yeah. system doesn't help, and unfortunately. I, and I think there's, a, uh, sorry, I think there's another thing that, uh, from my experience here in Ireland, Polish community like to stay together. I yeah. was going to say that. You know, yeah. and they do things for themselves, and they are very proud of what they do. But they often don't really mix enough, mm. you know, and they are very happy to do it for their friends. And, you know, there there's a girl in Waterford which bakes cakes and, you know, she would, uh, you know, support Polish school and so on. But it a- wouldn't be the she's more than happy to do just for the Polish people. And I think the part of the Polish complex, as I said, or being scared that somebody might not like it or what they're going to think about it. Like, I don't think we are proud enough what we have in Poland to do it. Uh, Like I said, I was talking to to Dee about it. I did the Polish night at Momo and it was very, very stressful. First of all, I'm not a chef. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I had my Slovakians and international chefs in the kitchen helping me to do that. And especially on that night, John and Sally McKenna came in for that dinner to the restaurant, which I was obviously quite nervous. But I was so much more nervous knowing that I was going to have a Polish customers that yeah. day. That the good part of Polish community, which I didn't know, came that day. And they were the toughest critics. Because I wanted to be sure that I'm going to do it right, that mm. my Polish customers going to be happy the way I presented Poland. And even speaking here today, I'm a little bit like, hopefully nobody will think that Camilla, I said something wrong. Do you mind if I say that you also were determined not to do pierogi and not to yes. do borscht? Like it was like that was your thing. You're like, I'm going to do something else. Yeah. Yes. And we had arguments about it, but I was like, no. <laughs> Polish food, it's so much more than pierogi and barsh. But what about doing it for people who are not Polish? I think as a Spaniard, like I always, when I have Spanish food in other countries, I'm always very, very, very critical. Or even like I grew up in Latin America, even Latin American food, I'm like, this is not authentic tamales or pupusas or this. So I think if I was doing, you know, a, di- a dinner for Spanish people, I can assure you they would be crucifying like, ooh, this is not really out. This doesn't have this or whatever. But I do think, you know, like putting that Polish food in context for people like us and, and especially a lot of people in the international community would be really, really interested. Anyway, this is something we need to yeah. talk about. And honestly, We're we could talk about <laughs> This is such a big topic. We may have to do a second episode. Yes. We just have to come back to it and cover more topics because um, it's been so fascinating. But um, May, I think you were. Going yeah, to I, I um, like I, I was curious about the, you know, do you guys have any thoughts of the future of Polish food in Ireland? Do you think that there is a place for Polish food? I feel like um, when I talk to my Polish friends in about Polish, like in Poland, right, it's it's advancing. So, um. 
Any thoughts? I think we as Polish community and Polish people, we need to grow a little bit in our confidence to be mm-hmm. more proud of what we are doing. And on and off, I have, as I call it, my notions about doing something else and opening maybe another business. But I don't feel comfortable and confident enough with my skills. Uh, you know, so it needs to be a person who is who is much more current with what's going on in Poland. And Poland changes so much, and there is so many incredible Polish restaurants yeah. in Poland. Oh yeah, and yeah. amazing chefs which do incredible things. And it's more about them showing off first on the international scale uh, what they can do because it's really inspiring and it's it's, it's mind blowing, honestly, what yeah. they can do. Well, I, I sincerely hope someone opens a Polish restaurant in Ireland for me, as in like, mm. I think Irish people are at a point where, you know, we are exploring different um, nationalities, cultures of cuisine here. Um, and I think there is an audience for it now, an appetite for it here. So maybe it's someone opening who has the confidence in Polish food here who realizes that actually maybe maybe not Polish people, but other people here would like to actually try it. And I hope that that does happen. But um it's a, it, well, th- maybe that is the future. And it's a really high note to leave it on because I think we all look forward to that. And um, thank you, Camilla, and thank no. you, Bart, for joining us today. It's been so nice to speak to you. We genuinely. Dziękuję. Dziękuję bardzo. Dziękuję. And yeah, so that's it for today. Thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you like what you heard or better yet, have a question or response or comment to anything that we said today, we really want to hear from you. So please contact us at Instagram at Spice Bags Pod, Twitter as well as the same Spice Bags Pod, or you can email us at spicebagspod at gmail.com. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.